27. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now our second reading, if you'd like to turn over to Matthew 21. page 826 if you're reading from the church bible so matthew 21 verses 1 to 11 now when they drew near to jerusalem and came to bethany to the mount of olives then jesus sent two disciples saying to them go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Kim. And good morning, everyone. Great to, to see you this morning. Thanks so much, Kim, for, for that wonderful reading. And uh, especially, good morning, kids. I can see Daisy down here and Emmanuel over there. Uh, I can see Zoe uh, and, uh, and Bella. Lovely. Uh, I know Hilkiah was around before and Daniel, uh, Izzy. So th- there's lots of kids here, which is great to see. Uh, kids, I've got a question for you. Um, what, what is your favourite story? What's a, what's a book or a movie that you really love? Why don't you just call it out for me? Spider-Man. Spider-Man? Which, do you have a particular one that you like? Or just all the Spider-Man? Spider-Man? I don't know. Cool. Well, that's great, Emmanuel. Uh, Spider-Man. Daisy, what about for you? Well, Ferdinand. What's Ferdinand? 
Oh, the bull, he's a bull. There you go. Well, I have lots to learn, don't I? That's good. What, here's, here's a bigger question for all of us, and this, just like for the kids, this is the sort of question I want some feedback on. Uh, what makes for a good story? So, so what makes for Ferdinand or Spider-Man being a good story or whatever your favourite story is? What makes for a good story? A happy ending, says Juanita. It involves you. It involves you. It engages you. Yep. How does a good story engage you? An adversary, an opponent, a problem. Yep. A good storyline. Yeah, now, that's what I want to talk about, Tony. A good storyline. Thanks for giving me the, the segue there. That's good. <laughs> so, I don't know if you realise this, but, but almost every good story follows a pretty sort of like paint-by-the-numbers structure. And I used to be an English teacher, so I know this backwards and forwards. But let me show you. I'll put it up here on the screen. So, here it is. Uh, I wonder if you've seen something like this. It might take you back to Year 7 English. So on the left, you can see on that, that vertical axis the action of the story, how much interesting stuff is happening. And then on the bottom, it's sort of tracing through the length of the book or the movie or whatever. Starts with an orientation, right? The action's low. We're setting up the world. Then there's a problem. There's an opponent. There's an adversary. And then there's tension that rises and it reaches a zenith, a point where the action's at its highest. We call it the climax. And then, hopefully, Juanita, an ending that is happy, <laughs> a resolution, right? Now, think about... Whatever your favourite story is, or a story that you like, Ferdinand, Spider-Man, uh, Frozen, Willy Wonka, Die Hard, it doesn't matter, whatever your favourite story is, okay, Star Wars, have a think, it probably follows this structure. And I'll give you one example, okay? Here's Star Wars, okay, and I mean the good one, Star Wars Episode Four. Orientation, we meet Luke Skywalker. He's just an ordinary kid, living on an ordinary planet, Tatooine, in the desert, Nothing much happening. Then there's a complication. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Right? There's a princess that needs saving. And so he and Obi-Wan, they go off and they, they try to save this princess Leia, but then they find as the tension of the movie increases, it's not just a princess that needs saving. It's the galaxy that needs saving. And so there's lightsaber battles. There's, there's uh, ships flying through the stars and shooting at each other. Even one of the main characters dies. I'm not going to tell you who. <laughs> and then, of course, there's a climax where the action reaches its highest point. Luke is in his little X-wing and he's going through this channel, flying through a channel in the Death Star. He has one shot to try and destroy this galaxy-obliterating weapon. He disengages his little tracking system. Use the force, Luke. Right? And he takes the shot. And I won't spoil it in case you're 50 years late to the party. <laughs> That's where the action's its highest. And you can probably put two to two together when, in the resolution, Luke gets a medal. <laughs> right? And Chewbacca does his little thing. And, and everybody's happy. The galaxy is safe. There you go. Right? That's the kind of story that, that grips us. Even when I just tell you the little one-minute summary, doesn't it grip you? Don't you want to go and watch it again? <laughs> now, as we come into the Gospel of Matthew, here's something interesting. This is not just true of fictional stories. This is also true often of real-life stories as well. Things that happen really in the world tend to follow this kind of pattern as well because art imitates life, doesn't it? It's not the other way around. Art imitates life. And so when we come into the Gospel of Matthew, here's the orientation that we've received. We've met a man whose name is Jesus. He starts as a baby, but of course this baby grows up. And 
uh, in the early stages, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, calls this baby Emmanuel. Do you know what that means? God is with us. In this baby who grows up, we in fact have the very person of God. This is God come to earth. And Jesus, as he grows up, does miracles, teaches crowds of people, calls disciples to follow him. The kingdom of God is here, he says. And it's come in the person of Jesus. His miracles, his teaching, all of it shows here is the kingdom of God. But there is a problem. The leaders of Israelite religion at this point in history have a lot to lose if there is a rival kingdom. Jesus is coming, saying that God is doing something new. He's doing something new in me, says Jesus. And the leaders don't like that one bit. They stand to lose a lot of power, a lot of control. And so Jesus actually takes his disciples aside at one point and he says, the leaders of Israelite religion are going to take me and arrest me and crucify me. I'm going to die in Jerusalem. Put a pin in that word, Jerusalem. Okay, here's the complication. And from there, the tension begins to rise. Rather than backing off, Jesus just pushes harder. <laughs> he teaches with, with all the more vigor. Do you remember last time we were in the Gospel of Matthew, we called the series The Hard Words of Jesus, because they are. He comes trying to reshape a people as part of his new kingdom. He says things like, uh, if, you, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you must become like a child, <laughs> humble, dependent. Go back to kindergarten if you want to enter the kingdom of God. He says things like, if you can't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Or if you illegitimately dissolve your marriage through divorce, apart from the ends that God provides, then you're an adulterer. The hard words of Jesus. In all of these ways, he's saying, this is the kind of kingdom where you don't get to make the rules, Jesus does. And that again riles up some of the religious leaders. And so we come to Matthew 21, and we could put here on our little plot point, uh, you are here, little map thing there, you are here, right at the point where the tension has risen. What's going to happen next? Well, he is about to enter Jerusalem, the centre of Israelite religion. And as we're going to see today, he's going to be received with praise and welcome by his people. Isn't that a wonderful resolution to the story? Everything's just wrapping up so nicely. Jesus is being praised by his people. This is like when Luke gets his medal, the galaxy saved, right? Wrong. Actually, as we're going to see, the tension is just going to keep rising. That's the point in the story that we're up to. Because what we're going to see is, is this clash of kingdoms, if you want to say. It's the kingdom of God coming through Christ, coming up against the so-called kingdom of the religious leaders. That's the dominant theme in this next few chapters of Matthew. And where it's going to lead, well, we're going to see. But there's something that, that I want us to, to really sort of have in mind as we approach this next few chapters, and that is this theme of confronting Christ. If you want to put two words over the next few chapters, that's it, confronting Christ. On the one hand, we're going to have the religious leaders who are part of this old kingdom 
trying to confront Jesus. They reject him as king. They reject him as Messiah. And they're going to try and throw every trick at the book at him to try and get him to trip up, to try and show that he's not really the king, show that he's not really the Messiah. So they're going to confront him. Lots of people in the world today try to do the same. But then there's also this table turning where it's not just people confronting Christ. We also meet the confronting Christ, right? Jesus is going to confront them and he's going to confront us. He's going to show and put everything on the line to show that he is the king, the true king and the true Messiah. He's going to expose severe problems in the religious leadership at the time. Severe problems with religion as people know it maybe even problems in our own world and our own lives. This is the story that we'll find ourselves in for the next few months, this story of, of rising tension and of confrontation. And so I hope you're up for it. Um, and uh, and we, how about we pray, and then we'll get into this first part of the story together. Lord, I'm mindful that there's this much bigger story that most of us don't think of all that much, but uh, this story of redemption and this story of you revealing yourself to your people and to the world and, and so Lord I pray that you would catch us up in that this morning we pray together that what is hidden you would make clear what we're turning our eyes away from you would uh, put back in front of us Lord show us what we need to see about your son Jesus in his name we pray amen now, I've never been heaps into the Marvel movies, uh, but I've married a woman who is, and so I've had to get used to that. And, uh, and slowly, I, I've begun to actually like these movies. So one of the... I know that's a confession, but one of the classics, of course, is Iron Man. Now, um, have you seen Iron Man? Anyone seen this movie? Yep, yep, good. All right. Now, even if you haven't seen it, you already know the story, okay? It's the same as every superhero story. Here's this guy. In, in this case, it's a man called Tony Stark, right? He has superpowers, big shock. And uh, he uses those superpowers to save the world. <laughs> and, uh, and he does it all without people knowing his true identity. And in that sense, it's the same sort of story as Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or, or whatever else. Okay? Now, that's, that's the plot until the very final seconds of the movie. And this is where it takes an abrupt turn because Tony Stark is standing in front of a press conference full of people and he says the words, I am Iron Man. And then everyone goes absolutely nuts and the movie ends. Now, why would a superhero, like a guy like Tony Stark, reveal his true identity to people? Isn't that going to put him in danger? Isn't that going to put the people he loves in danger? Why would he do this? What's going to happen next? Well, to find out, you've got to watch another 20 movies and like 50 TV shows because that's the way that Marvel works. But, but there's something in this that's kind of like what Jesus is doing here in chapter 21 as well. You see, uh, th this is a, a similar moment for Jesus. And I want you to open up with me, if you haven't got it open already, uh, to Matthew 21 on page 826. Uh, ideally, you should just keep this open, right, after the Bible reading because we just read the Bible and then we go through it together here at Coast Bible Church. So just keep it open, right? Matthew 21. Page 826, um, Jesus has kept his identity hidden for 33 years, right? 33 years of waiting. Yes, he's given us glimpses of who he is along the way, miracles, the teaching and so on. 
But this is the sort of I am Iron Man moment where he, he, makes it, he takes another big step in revealing who he is. And he doesn't, of course, say Iron Man. What he's saying is, I am the true king. He's announcing that for all and sundry to see. But the question is, what kind of king is he? And just like with Tony Stark and Iron Man, how will people react to him as king? Those are the questions we're going to deal with this morning. And we're going to see four things that Jesus reveals himself, uh, 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 reveals about himself as king. The first three were probably pretty uncontroversial in their time. The fourth one upends everyone's assumptions and may well do for us as well. So let's kick in at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied with a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Here's the first thing that Jesus reveals about himself as king. He is the authoritative king. Hopefully you can hear that just in the tone he uses in verses 1 to 3 here. He's he's speaking with a, a commanding tone. Even just notice the verbs here, the action words, go, find, untie, bring. Right? This isn't the sort of tone that's like you're asking a friend for a favour. Right? Hey, if you wouldn't mind, then possibly if you can spare the cash, bring a salad to the, the lunch that we've got, just, just if you don't mind. It's not that kind of thing. It's go, do this, I'm commanding you. And notice that his disciples listen. Why? Because they understand something about him. They understand that he has authority. In fact, they understand that he is the Lord. Notice that in verse 3. If anyone says anything to you about this donkey when you're untying it, say, the Lord needs them. And that's talking about him. He's calling himself here the Lord. And across Matthew's gospel, this word Lord is used a bunch of times. It can mean master. It can mean king, something like that. It means the person in charge. And I want to just canvas this a little bit and show you how this word Lord is used of Jesus. Here's three examples. From chapter 8, verse 2, there's a leper, right? a person with an incurable skin condition, comes up to Jesus. He bows before him and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And then Jesus, as the Lord, heals him. A couple of verses over, a centurion comes to him and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He recognizes Jesus is the Lord. And then Jesus, as the Lord, heals the servant. Matthew 14, 28, Jesus is walking out in the water. Peter calls to him, Lord, if it's you, then command me, notice the authority, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus enables him to. He enables Peter to walk on the water. And then, of course, as we know, when Peter takes his eyes off the Lord, he begins to sink. And what does he call out? Lord, save me. (laughs) And Jesus pulls him up and saves him. Is this kind of Lord? He is the Lord who has authority over the physical world, over the, the creation that he himself has made. Whether it's sickness or disease or wind or waves, he's in charge. 
In fact, here in Matthew chapter 21, he commands his disciples, go and untie this donkey. And there's a word here, immediately. Notice that there in in verse 2. Immediately, you will find a donkey tied. It's not, you know, go there and I'm pretty sure that given enough time, someone will come along with a donkey. And then maybe ask them and they might let you have it. No, (laughs) it's go now. And it's not like he can see down the road. He he knows because he and his authority has determined that there is going to be a donkey and its colt there at that particular time, at that particular place, and they will go now and they will immediately find it because he is in charge of his creation. But it's not just the physical world that Jesus has authority over. Listen to this. Matthew 17, 15, a man comes to Jesus with a, his son is frothing at the mouth. He's throwing himself into the fire because he is oppressed by a demon. Okay? And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Jesus drives out the demon. Jesus heals him. And then going back to 7, 21, Jesus says, this, he himself says these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, do you hear what's happening here? In the first instance, we don't think about this often in the West, but, but demonic reality is real, spiritual reality is real, and Jesus has command over it. It's not this battle between Jesus and demons and who's going to win, right? Jesus versus Satan, I wonder. No, Jesus has authority. He can do as he wills. He has authority over the spiritual world. But then in the second instance, notice here, he also has authority over our very souls. We can't see our souls, but Jesus can. And he has authority to determine who will have eternal life with God and who will not. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, not just those who come to me saying, Lord, Lord, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus makes the call. He's the king with authority. Are you seeing this? He is the authoritative king. And I wonder, do you recognize that about him? Do you see this about Jesus? Do you understand that he is the king with authority, not only over the physical world, but over the spiritual world and over your very soul? See, he's putting this on display for us, friends. He wants us to see this so that we can respond in some way. He doesn't want you to be surprised. There's the first thing that we see about Jesus. He is the authoritative king. Second, he is the prophesied king. The prophesied king. What's prophesied mean? It means scripture has foretold that something will happen. Something in the Old Testament has pointed forward to a fulfillment in the New Testament. And here Jesus is that fulfillment. And basically, Matthew grabs like a, you know, like a two by four bit of wood. He grabs it and just... Hits us over the head with this. He really wants us to see that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Have a look here at verse 1 once again. Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, but looming over their path is something important. I wonder if you noticed it. Do you see what it is? Looming over their path is the Mount of Olives. And you say, aha, I get it. Right? I know what you're talking about. Well, <laughs> the Israelites would have known what this was all about because they will have read the Old Testament, they will have read Zechariah, and they will have been familiar with what chapters and verses we now call Zechariah 14. And in Zechariah 14, you can go and look it up later if you want, there's this picture that the Messiah is going to stand on the Mount of Olives, he's going to stand right on top of it, 
and, and then God is going to deliver his people from the mountain. Okay, There's this prophecy there about the Messiah's work beginning there from the Mount of Olives. And so I want you just to imagine here, imagine yourself standing there on this day and you see Jesus, he's walking towards Jerusalem, he's taking this final leg of the journey and just a couple of kilometers out of town, he stops. And he commands his disciples to go and, and get the donkeys and all of that. And they're gone for a period of time, they have to go down to the next town. But he stays there. He doesn't keep walking. He doesn't need a donkey. He's been walking like for 100 k's from Jericho to get up here. So, so why is he stopping here? And then you look up and you notice he's right in front of the Mount of Olives. If you had a camera back then, which I know you can't, but if you had a camera, you could take a picture and both Jesus and the Mount of Olives would be in frame. And you could rip that picture right out of Zechariah 14. Right? Here's the Messiah standing by the Mount of Olives, about to do his work of salvation. Matthew wants us to see that. And then the blokes come back with the donkeys, and, and Matthew wants us to see another way in which Jesus is the prophesied king. Uh, because in Zechariah 9, verse 9, we hear this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold! Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, right, click, there's another snapshot of prophecy fulfilled from Zechariah chapter 9. Here's Jesus, the saviour of God's people, coming into God's place in Jerusalem and he's riding on the colt of a donkey. Matthew even quotes it for us and then he says in verse 4 there in Matthew 21, this took place to what? What's it say? To? Say it. Fulfill. Thank you. I want to make sure you're tracking with me. Yeah. He, he, this took place to fulfill these words. Matthew is looking back and then he's going, see, this is Jesus. He's the fulfillment. And, and this is so important to understand about Scripture, by the way, friends. It, it's not just little things that tend to happen, right? It's one big story, a story of, of promise and fulfillment. We're actually reading a, a little Bible with Zoe at the moment. It's called the God's Big Promise Storybook Bible. Um, I think it's great for adults too, right? Zoe's not understanding a word of it at the moment, but you could understand a word of it if you got a copy. It's all about how um, God promises things across the Old Testament and then there's fulfillment in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. It's a beautiful story. This is the story that God is telling. And it all hangs together. It hangs together in the person of Jesus and his mission to come and bring salvation. Okay? That's what's happening right here as Jesus is the prophesied king. And third, on that note, he is a saving king. This is what the, prophesy, uh, the prophecies all point to. And the crowd recognized that in some way. Verse 9, they shout out, Hosanna! Hosanna! That means uh, God save us. It's from Psalm 118, verse 25, 26. Uh, Lord, save us. Or, or even, we praise you as the Savior. They're, they're recognizing that Jesus is a king who's come to save. And they're praising God for the salvation he's about to bring uh, through this authoritative, prophesied, saving king. Now, do you reckon the crowd likes the look of what they're seeing? I'll say, yeah. Because here's the moment. History's all been pointing to this. 
And so they go and they grab the, the palm fronds and lay them down and then they get their cloaks off their back and put them on the ground so that even the, the donkey's feet won't touch the ground, the dirt. Uh, this is like what uh, people had done hundreds of years earlier for another king named Jehu. Um, and even a hundred years earlier by another Israelite that some thought was the Messiah, but he wasn't. He got killed and didn't rise again. Um, and now they're going, no, this is the one. And so we're going to lay down the palm fronds. We're going to put down the clothing. Here is the Messiah, the king that God is sending. They're giving him the royal treatment, so to speak. Verse 9 even says that they're shouting praise before him and behind him, so great is the crowd. And in verse 10, we even hear that the whole city of Jerusalem has been stirred up by this. It's electrifying. Imagine being there. But then Jesus reveals a fourth thing about himself. Something that, you know, if the first three all sounded like good news to the crowds, the fourth one might not be as popular. Something, in fact, I think that much of the crowd missed in this moment, but they shouldn't have missed it. It was blindingly obvious, and it puts into context every one of those first three things that we've seen. It's that Jesus is coming as a humble king, a humble king, a king without coercion, a humble king. Now, um, this passage is often called the triumphal entry, right? The triumphal entry. And there's a sense in which that's true. This is a triumph. But there's a sense in which the word triumphal is not quite fitting. When I think triumphal entry, I think more of something like, like this. Anyone watch this live? Yeah? Tragics. Absolute tragics if you watch this live. <laughs> uh, King Charles, obviously. The soldiers, the, the, the parade down the street... Um, receiving a crown, gold, gilded with, with jewels, studded with jewels. Uh, this, is, this is a world away from how Jesus came into Jerusalem, isn't it? This is a triumphal entry. He was carrying a golden carriage, for goodness sake. But Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Now, you can tell a fair bit about someone sometimes by looking at the vehicle that they drive, Right? So here's something you can tell about Charles. He's obviously very revered. Um, here's my friend's car, or something that looks like my friend's car. What can you tell about him? Yeah, he's a dad. <laughs> he's got kids. In fact, um, this is a Honda Odyssey. They were hoping not to have to buy this car. They, they went for their third kid and got twins. So they got four kids in the end. <laughs> Love them to bits. Um, but it meant they had to upgrade to the big car and uh, that's life now. <laughs> uh, by the way, my friend is an excellent father. He's not just a family man. He's a family man among family men, right? I, I watch him in his home all the time. Uh, and, and here, just like you can tell from the car something about the dad and the man that he is, uh, we can tell something about Jesus by looking at his vehicle, can't we? And his vehicle in this case is, of course, a donkey. Now, kings would normally ride into the city on a war horse, as if to say, here I am, the conqueror, the one in charge, right? And if you stand against me, I'm a threat. I've got the power. I will destroy you if you stand against me, says the king when he comes on a war horse. Now, Jesus comes on a donkey and there's not a whole lot of war you can do on a donkey, is there, unless your opponent is very, very slow or very, very short. <laughs> there's not a whole lot you can do from a donkey. In fact, Jesus isn't just on a donkey, do you notice? Zechariah 9 tells us that he comes riding on the colt or the fall of a donkey, like the baby 
the, the unbroken in, untamed, possibly rebellious animal that's definitely got no place on the, the battlefield. Now, of course, this animal knows exactly where to go because Jesus is commanding it. He's the authoritative king. But all a foal can do really is follow mum around. That's why they have to get the second donkey. It's mum to, to bring it into Jerusalem. What a humble entry for the true king of kings. He's the humble king. And the point here is that he doesn't come to make war. He comes to bring peace. He comes to offer peace to those who receive him. And in the original prophecy from Zechariah, that was actually really clear. It's maybe telling that, that Matthew drops off the next verse. Because if you take a look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, right, he'll come riding on the foal of a donkey. We've just heard that. Then you go to the very next verse, verse 10, and I'll show you this. It says, this is what God will do through this king. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he, this king, this Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Just picture that. Jesus comes into Jerusalem so that the chariot might be left in the ditch forever. He comes into Jerusalem so that the war horse might be set free to run into the fields. He comes into Jerusalem so that the bow might be snapped in half and war might be done with. This is why Jesus comes. He doesn't come to make war, but to bring peace. Peace for whom? For the nations, it says. Not just for Israel. Not just for God's chosen people from the Old Testament. For the nations, for both Israel and the Gentiles. Notice it says, sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. This is peace for the nations, which sounds great, doesn't it? Except if you're living back then. Because the Israelites at this period of time, they didn't want peace for the nations. Think about it. If you're in the crowd this day and you're welcoming Jesus as the king, you're thinking... Wow, he's come to finally get rid of those who oppress us. Because it was the Canaanites, it was the Philistines, it was the Moabites, it was the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians, it was the Persians, now it's the Romans. But finally, the Messiah has come, the King has come. This authoritative, prophesied, saving King who's going to make war on our enemies and get rid of them once and for all and we will be at peace. That's what many in the crowd are thinking at this point. And, and Matthew actually gives us several signs that that's what they're thinking. The first is in that phrase, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, remember what Hosanna means? What's it mean? Save us. Yep, save us. That's right. Um, but also at this time, I've, I've left out a detail for you, right? The detail is that at this time, this phrase would often be used as a bit of a nationalistic sort of chant, all right? Um, so people would use it a bit like our friends across the, the water might say, God bless America. Right? Now, someone might say, God bless America, because they just mean, Lord, we, we want to see more Christians in America. We want to see our country uh, grow in, in Christian thinking, and we want to be blessed towards that end. Yep, great. But someone else might say, God bless America, because we are a Christian nation, and we are God's special people. So God bless America more than everyone else. And I know that the US is like low-hanging fruit, right? But, but do you see the picture here? 
there are, there are Israelites, many who would be in this crowd at this point in time, who are thinking, God bless Israel. We are the special people. So God bless us, not others. Right? God save us from the others, the Romans. There's a second thing as well. Together with that word Hosanna, notice that they say Hosanna to whom? The son of David. The son of David. Now, that's an accurate statement. Jesus came from David's line because he is a royal king. Fair enough. But again, when you put these two things together, the nationalism of, of Hosanna and then this idea of being the son of David, it's likely that they're thinking Hosanna to the king who comes like David, a conquering king. Now, I don't know how they make sense of the donkey in this case, but, but they, they, they're calling out, Lord, save us in the way that David saved our people in the past. Save us by making war on our enemies. Conquer. Be the Goliath slayer, just like David was. Slay this empire that looms over us. We know that you can. You have the authority. There's a third reason why I think uh, this is what's going on in the crowd. Uh, it's that at the end of this passage, there's a question on the city's lips. Verse 10. Who is this? Who is this man? And here's the answer that the crowd gives. Verse 11. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the prophet, which is not so much inaccurate as it is inadequate. Right? Yes, he's the prophet. Yes, he speaks for God. And yes, he even fulfills Deuteronomy 18, if you're familiar with that part of the Bible. But there is so much more to Jesus. He's more than a prophet. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is God himself. And so the crowd recognizes something of Jesus' significance, but they're still missing who he really is. And I think the really telling thing here is that uh, Jesus, when he comes to the gate of Jerusalem, right? And this isn't here in, in Matthew's account. But if you flip over to Luke chapter 19, there's something Jesus does. Uh, after all the fanfare, all the praise, all the recognition of him as king, he stops by the gate and he weeps. He weeps. And he says, if only you, even you, Jerusalem, had known uh, the, the time of your visitation. You could have experienced this peace. See, and this is the thing. Jesus comes to bring peace and not war, and they're going to be locked out from experiencing it because what they are missing about this king. They have failed to recognize his true identity. He is the authoritative king, but he's not come to use his authority to get rid of the Romans. He is the prophesied king, but they've missed what the prophecies actually point to. He is the saving king, but he hasn't just come to save them from their problems because he's the humble king. The one, in fact, who will come without coercion and comes to offer peace for all peoples, including the ones oppressing them. And as we know, by the end of this very week, he'll make that offer at the cost of his own life. Some of those in this very crowd who are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, will end up crying, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus will, in his authority, allow himself to be crucified. He will exchange his king's crown for a crown of thorns. He will wear purple robes, the, the, the garb of kings, but only to be mocked and spat on. He will be raised up above a crowd, but not on a throne, on a cross. 
And he will do this because he is the humble king who comes to bring peace. Most of all, peace with God through his death on the cross. That is his mission. And that is a peace that is offered to both Israelite and Gentile alike. Because this is the God who has been rejected by all Israelite and Gentile alike. The crowd rejected him. They didn't hear, but they will. And in fact, if we're honest, we know that we've all rejected him too. We've all failed to recognize Jesus for the king that he is. Instead of following him in his authority, we've made ourselves the authority. As if we can call the shots. As if we're in charge. And the king won't let that stand. There is a price to be paid for rebellion. Jesus says, Matthew 7, Not all those who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And we've all failed at that, haven't we? If we're honest. We need, therefore, a saviour. We need this humble king to lay down his perfect life in exchange for our own. And that, praise God, Hosanna, is exactly what he does. This is the thing that the crowd missed. That we need this king to give his life in place for our rebellion. And only then, by trusting in him, can we have peace with God. The crowd missed it. The question is, will we? And that brings us to thinking about what this passage really means for us today. Because, yeah, these things happened 2,000 years ago, but what does it mean now? Well, I've got three things that I think the Lord might be pressing into us this morning. Three questions. The first is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's what the city asks as Jesus enters Jerusalem. So ask yourself again today, who is this man? Who do you say that he is? Because there's a danger here, friends. Uh, Some in this crowd will have travelled with Jesus for years. They may have been with him ever since he began his ministry. Judas was there. And there are people who can travel along with a a group of Christians for a period of time. They can be in a a church for decades. They can be baptised. They can even be serving in ministry. And yet they've totally missed who Jesus actually is. So I know the question in one sense might feel a little bit condescending. It's like going back to kindergarten. I know who Jesus is, of course. But we've got to ask ourselves from time to time, especially when Scripture presses the question to us, who do I say Jesus is today? It doesn't matter as much who I said he was yesterday. Who do I say he is today? Does he truly have all authority in my life over the world? Do the scriptures, do I believe that they really have pointed to him as the only saviour of the world? Has he come to save me and how? How would you answer that question? How has Jesus saved you? Do you have peace with God? These are critical questions because eternity hangs in the balance on these questions, friends. See, uh, Jesus came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey to bring peace, but there is a time coming and Uh, wherever Andrew is. Andrew mentioned this in his prayer. Revelation 19, he's going to come back on a war horse. He is the king who's going to come back and he's going to make war against all those who persisted in rebelling against him. Death and hell await. 
But right now there's an opportunity because, because Jesus does come to bring peace. He wants you as part of his kingdom. Will you turn to Jesus away from your rebellion, turn to him in trust and receive him as the king and as the saviour of your life? That is the only way to have peace with God. Second thing, are you reshaping Jesus? See, often we talk about receiving Jesus or rejecting Jesus. You know what I mean? And that's, that's true. That's the black and white choice. Either I receive him or I reject him. But, but I think there's something that even people who receive Jesus are at risk of doing, which is reshaping Jesus. We try and get him to fit a particular mould of what kind of king he should be, Right? Rather than living under his authority, we sort of say, well, well, here's what you should look like. And we might never say it verbally in those words, and we might never consciously think it that way, but that's what we're doing. And, and what it happens is, is it, where it happens is like the crowd here, they get a distorted picture of who Jesus is, is and what he's come to do, right? It's a distortion. They're taking true things about him, that he is authoritative and prophesied and saviour, and then there's a twist that happens, so why has he come to save? Well, he's come to save us from the Romans, from our oppressors. How is he going to do that? He's going to make war. Right? He's going to fix my Roman problem. Now, we might do the same thing when we think, well, Jesus has all authority and he's come to save. He saved me from my sins, yes. And what else might he do with his authority? Well, he's come to fix my sickness. He's come to fix my anxiety. He's come to fix my depression. He's come to fix my money problems. He's come to fix my business. He's come to fix my body. He's come to fix my issues. And we'd all agree Jesus has the authority to do those things if he wants to, doesn't he? Of course he does. Of course he does. And why wouldn't he? Because he loves his people, right? Well, see, the problem is Jesus has never promised to do all of those things here in this life. He's promised to save us from our sins. He's promised to be with us forever. He's promised to grow us more and more into his image. He's promised that there is a new kingdom and a new creation that we're going to enter where all of these problems will be solved. But in the meantime, he has not promised that he will take away all your anxiety. He has not promised he will take away all your depression or sickness or, or body issues or whatever the case may be any more than he's promised those things to me. Right? And the problem is, just like with the crowd, if we start to think that that's what Jesus has come to do, then we can get very upset with him and disappointed with him and even angry at him when those things don't happen. Because we've fallen for one of the oldest tricks in the book, and it's a trick called triumphalism, which is very fitting given this is the triumphal entry. Triumphalism is this idea that if Jesus has all authority and, and he, he's out for the good of his people, and both those things are true, then life will get better and better and better and better and better and better under Jesus. Well, there is a truth to that, but maybe not in the way that we think. And the problem is we have an idea of what the good life, the better life entails. And then we go, well, Jesus, you should give me this thing in your authority. And we get upset when, when he doesn't. Friends, Jesus has not promised to be a butler at our every whim. He's not that kind of savior. He's not that kind of king. He actually has a much bigger plan and a bigger purpose with our lives. And we cannot shape him to fit what we want. Instead, he wants to reshape us to live under his authority. I've got a quote here, and I love it, and I hate it. It's from Daniel Doriani. We face the same challenge the Israelites faced long ago. Jesus is king, but we must let him define his kingship. We must receive Jesus as he is, not as we'd like him to be. 
We must let him come on a donkey, not a stallion. We must let him define his reign. Friends, resist triumphalism. Resist the temptation to reshape Jesus' authority. His rule in your life might look very different to what you signed up for or what you anticipated. But he knows what's best. And after all, he himself is the humble king who himself walked through the worst kind of suffering. So he can enable you to do the same. Yes? Third and final thing, brief point. Will you praise Jesus? Because the the crowd here, although they're misguided in their praise, they are right to praise him. And there's an exuberance and an excitement and a joy. Now, that's for them receiving a version of Jesus, but, but we know the true Jesus, don't we? We know what he's truly come to do. How much more, therefore, can we praise him? Not to get something out of him like the crowd wanted, but, but because of what he's done for us. He has come to bring us peace with God. He has taken away our sin by faith in his finished work. He has brought us into this incredible story where it's the fulfillment of his creation intention of a new people. Peace not only with God, but with those that we might call enemy. Peace with the nations. Peace with his people from every tribe and every tongue, praising Jesus together. We've been drawn into that story. So will you praise Jesus with joy and exuberance, and passion, and love, and gratitude, and thankfulness because of what he's done for you. As we turn towards communion, and singing, and fellowship, in the week ahead, we have the chance to do just that. To reflect on what he's done for us. To praise him with joy. Reflect on what he's done for you. How he's come as the humble servant. And he, as the humble king, laid down his life to save and serve you. Who do you say Jesus is? Are you at risk of reshaping him? And in the end, will you praise King Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I'm mindful that we um, would know nothing of you if you had not revealed yourself. And so thank you for revealing yourself in the way that you have this morning. Help us to, Lord, sit with these realities, to grow in Uh, deeper love for you and trust in you as a result of what you have shown us. What it is, Lord, that each of us has needed to hear from you, we pray that you would apply it by your spirit to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to share in communion now, and I don't think I need to say much. Let's reflect on this humble king, what he's come to do. And if you're a baptized believer, one who has... Uh, been baptized because you've trusted in Jesus as your King and Savior, then invite you to come down the front, grab the elements, go back to your seat, just see if anyone else needs help around you, and then we're all going to share together in a moment.